Hello and welcome to Power Pros Podcast, episode 192. I'm your host, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and with me once again is my co-host and nemesis, the beard-to-be-feared Pete Mashad. There is no Pete, only Zur. Okay, if you say so. Regardless of that, we are back once again to talk about what is going on in the world of Nintendo, and that means a bunch of game impressions, some news, and then our big topic for this episode, which is the 30th anniversary of Super Mario Bros. 3. However, we will be kicking things off with these game impressions, and it's actually been a surprisingly packed couple of weeks so far, and even though there haven't been any like monstrous AAA titles, there have been a whole bunch of releases, and we're going to get into as many of those as we can, starting with Snack World, the Dungeon Crawl, gold for Nintendo Switch. No oh man, I'm getting hungry just hearing about it. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a very bizarre, very wacky, very goofy game. It is a Switch port of a title previously released in Japan for the 3DS back in 2017, and I've been very curious about this game ever since. I don't really like dungeon crawls, so hearing that kind of worries me a little bit, but I do indeed like snacks, and I do indeed like the developer, Level 5, so I have been wanting to try this game for a while now. Yeah, this one definitely piqued my interest as well. It sounds like a, maybe a Diablo light, if you will. Yeah, yeah, that is probably a very good way to describe it. It's a very cartoony sort of take on Diablo gameplay, I would say. And also, yeah, completely and utterly ridiculous. Like, it opens <laughs> with this theme song called Pork Chops for the Win, with lyrics such as, why don't we eat some pork chops now? Um, all right. And that goofiness certainly carries over into just about every other aspect of the game. The cartoony visuals, the silly characters you sort of randomly appear in this town and you start getting missions from the king and the supposed princess. Although I think she's probably actually the king's much, much younger mistress. She's always talking about what's popular on social media and how she needs to get the most likes and stuff like that. She's horribly annoying as a character. <laughs> and yeah, as far as gameplay goes, it is this sort of semi-top-down hack-and-slash game with an assortment of weapons and equipment. A lot like Diablo. And you do have these AI-controlled partner characters as well. Uh, you can get swords and axes and spears and other stuff. You know, some are more effective than others. It depends on what kind of enemy you're fighting. But the whole snack aspect of the game is kind of tenuous. You know, even though there are these snack-themed names for characters and places, it really doesn't extend beyond that. Like, you go to this place called the Gorgonzola Ruins, <laughs> but, you know, you would think it'd be like made of cheese or something like that. Nope, it's just these ruins. It's called Gorgonzola Ruins. I mean, it's sort of a play on the word Gorgon because Medusa is in there. Ah. But, you know, it would make a lot more sense if it was actually built out of cheese. But nope, nope, it's definitely not. Yeah, it sounds like a localization team just run wild. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I assume all this stuff was there in the Japanese version because it always has been called Snack World. But sure. yeah, they do have some really strange names for stuff like your weapons and equipment are all called Jaras. I don't really know what that means, but that's what they call them. And the NPC allies that you bring into battle with you are called Snacks. <laughs> Why are they called Snacks? You don't eat them? I don't know. Maybe there's some reason I just haven't learned. But uh, yeah, that's how it is. They're Snacks, Chris. They're Snacks. Come on. <laughs> 
I don't know why they're snacks, but they are. But yeah, you are right. They definitely had a lot of fun with the localization, but you know, it does kind of get overbearing at times. I think maybe it tries possibly too hard with the meme thing. And I kind of feel like anyone who's localized a game can probably tell you that's very dangerous. You know, if you put some popular new hot meme into a game, there's a good chance that by the time that game comes out, that meme will be long forgotten and it'll just feel really, really dated, you know? Yeah, I mean, I even have a problem with Monster Hunter sometimes where they just like get a little too like, I don't know, cheeky with the dialogue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I especially see that in something like Monster Hunter. In this game where the whole thing is super goofy, it kind of makes sense, but it really does come at you with it really really heavily and in addition to that a lot of the humor is also very very juvenile which i can't say i really mind that but i think some people might uh, anyway as a whole the writing is fun but it can still be kind of grating and that's uh, an intentional food pun by the way oh nice as for the hack and slash gameplay i would say it's pretty solid some of the maps are predetermined but some of them are also procedurally generated with you know, different layouts and even different objectives each time you play through them. Like sometimes you might need to find a couple of buttons in this really big level to open up a door to the next area, and you might be pursued by this Grim Reaper character who's like going to insta-kill you if you take too long, but sometimes that is not a feature of the dungeon. So, you know, it's kind of just the luck of the draw. <laughs> now, one major issue I had with the game is with the multiplayer. So, first off, there is no single-system multiplayer at all. Oh. Yeah, you can only do multiplayer if you have multiple systems. It can be local, it can be online, but on top of that, you can't even play the main story missions in co-op. It's only for these side missions. Mm. And I kind of thought that co-op would be like one of the biggest features to this game, but I ended up being sadly mistaken. Like, how many times am I going to find one other person, let alone three other people that own this game? I don't think it's going to happen very often. <laughs> Well, right, and the fact that you can't play the main game together is kind of weird, too. Right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, between the lack of multiplayer and, you know, some of this overwhelming meme stuff, the game just sort of got on my nerves really heavily, and I lost interest in it after just a couple of hours. Luckily, I was borrowing this one rather than having actually bought it, and I don't think I'm going to be picking it up anytime soon. The main character's catchphrase in the game is actually, let's get this over with. And that's kind of how I felt about this game from what I played so far. Oh man, that's going to be my next Power Pro sign-on quote. <laughs> Let's get this over with. Yeah, yeah. So I would probably you know, give this game on like a Nintendo Power scale, probably a 6 out of 10 from what I've played so far. Ooh, all right. Kind of harsh, but it makes sense. It sounds like as much as it wants to be Diablo, it's kind of lacking in a lot of departments. Yeah, it just could have used a little bit more polish. I mean, I don't think a 6 is a bad score, but I would certainly have expected more from a developer like Level 5. Yeah, definitely. Moving along to another title I've been playing recently, and that is Vitamin Connection, also for Switch. A uh, big disclaimer here, I do work for the developer and publisher, which is way forward, so, you know, I might be a little personally biased on this one. Um, anyway, you know, after having done promotional work on this game for months, I at last got to go hands-on with the Switch version, and I am not disappointed. I found it to be a, you know, quirky, colorful, comical twin-stick shooter that kind of feels like, you know, Gradius meets Katamari Damacy meets Kurakura Kurakura Rin. 
I've been calling it a cure up because, you know, that's what you're doing. You're <laughs> actually curing people by being this vitamin capsule that goes through their bodies and blasting evil bacteria. Uh, also, unlike a traditional shooter, you have, instead of boss battles, what we call sub-games, which are these little mini-games with different objectives and rules, like one's a rhythm game and one's kind of like Pog. Now, Pete, have you had a chance to play this as well? I have, and I can officially say it's a very, very solid game. All right, cool. Well, I'm glad to hear that from uh, somebody else who uh, has not been working on it so closely. <laughs> now, did you play it mostly single player or in co-op mode? I have only played it single player so far. I did not get a chance to play it co-op, but I am actually anxious to because it seems like that's where the game would really shine. Well, I mean, I think it's fairly good in both modes, but yeah, playing co-op is a big part of that game because you can play it single player, sort of traditional controls, or you do this asymmetric co-op mode where each player takes a Joy-Con, one person is uh, holding it pointed at the screen and they use it to steer and press the fire button. Uh, the other player holds it sideways and they you know, rotate the ship and aim and they actually play with motion controls. They tilt the controller like a steering wheel. <laughs> And, you know, trying to coordinate that in co-op mode. You know, from what I played, I played the first two levels in co-op, and it is a lot of fun. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what your experience is like, you know, playing that in co-op mode with your wife or something like that. Miss Yeti. <laughs> That's right. As much fun as it is in single player, which I was not really sure about, you know, I got kind of bored with, like, the stretchers in single player. But I feel like this game is definitely viable single player. Mm -hmm. And I never got to a point where I was like, you know, I definitely feel like I should be playing this in co-op. But at the same time, I feel like co-op is kind of what this game was designed for. Because you can just imagine even the most simplest things being sort of difficult when you have two people who have different minds being on the same page. Yeah, you are definitely right about that. It really was designed with co-op in mind. But, you know, we also tried really hard to make it... So it was still fun in single-player mode. I'd like to think that we managed to accomplish both, but I do have one little word of warning about that, and that is that your progress between solo mode and co-op mode does not carry over. Mm -hmm. So in my case, you know, first I played through two stages in co-op, and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to pick up on stage three. But no, I had to start over from the beginning when I was playing in solo mode. Now, I guess if you do solo mode first, maybe that isn't such a bad thing since you probably want to have your co-op partner kind of right into the action <laughs> you don't want to just throw them into level three or four yeah, right exactly that would probably be a disaster uh still i wish the option were in there because you, know, you can replay previous levels and stuff like that so there is that thing to consider also another thing that some people might want to know about is that some aspects of the motion controls can also take some getting used to like most notably using the motion controls with the pro controller to use the claw module hmm. and kind of be difficult but you know there is the alternative with traditional controls instead but you might still think, yeah, this takes a little bit of practice either way. So just be prepared for that. When I got the claw, I was like, how in the world? Like, it seriously took me, mm, even after the little tutorial, I just couldn't figure out what they were trying to say. <laughs> and so I was like, what is going on? Anyways, then I finally realized you actually have to tilt. I was playing in handheld mode. You actually have to tilt the entire console. To me, it's not completely obvious, besides that it says it in the tutorial. But the tutorial is kind of in a way where you're like, which part is motion controlled so i don't know i couldn't figure it out no you're right it is a little bit confusing and the other thing that's a little confusing is that you can just press in the right stick to activate the claw 
Then you maneuver it using the left stick, and then you grab things by, like, pushing the right stick. So there's a total traditional way to do it. It's just not obvious at first. Uh And you might find that that is better when you're playing in handheld mode, especially. (laughs) All right. Thanks for the pro tip. Uh, What do you think of the story and the music so far? (laughs) It's definitely funny. You know, it's very reminiscent, I think, of, like you said, some of the, like, very heavy Japanese games like Katamari, Damacy. Yeah, so it's definitely kitschy. And then one of the other parts that I thought was really fun is that those mini games you were talking about, you know, sort of like the boss battles in the game. Mm-hmm. Each one of those mini games has their own like little title screen. Oh yeah, yeah. That's selectable later, and those are really awesome. Like some literally feel like a 1980s arcade game, <laughs> and yeah, very cool to look for as well. Yeah, definitely. And as far as the music goes, like. It's just like running through my head all day long. Like, you know, I haven't played the game in two days, but the music is still just like constantly running through my head. It's very, very catchy. It has a wide variety of music. It's pretty darn cool, I would say. Yeah, definitely memorable. Anyway, certainly this game is living up to my expectations. Again, I might be a little bit biased, but I'm finding it to be both charming and challenging and pretty remarkable for 20 bucks. Yeah, I believe this game is right up there with like, you know, snipper clips or uh, the stretchers in one of those games that you absolutely will break out when you have a friend around and you both want to try some co-op action. Yeah, I definitely think it's a good addition to any Switch library. All right, that's the goal. So happy to hear you say that. Okay, then let us move on to another title I have been playing. This one's a blast from the past. It was a game we were talking about last episode, and that is the Double Dragon and Kunio Kun Retro Brawler Bundle. (laughs) <laughs> that is quite a mouthful. It is, especially when you add a Bobo. Yeah, you don't want to put him in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> no. Anyway, I need to issue a correction from what I was talking about on the last episode, because what I read in the press release and mentioned was that this collection has 18 games, seven that were previously released in North America, those being Double Dragon 1, 2, and 3, plus Renegade, River City Ransom, Super Dodgeball, and Crash and the Boys Street Challenge. And that's all true. And then there are also supposed to be 11 games that were only previously released in Japan, but that's not exactly accurate. Of those 11 games, five of them are the Japanese versions of Renegade, River City Ransom, Super Dodgeball, Crash and the Boys, and also Nintendo World Cup Soccer. And then there are six games that we legitimately never got over here. Those being, okay, get ready for some crazy titles here. Downtown Niketsu March Super Awesome Field Day, which is the predecessor to Crash and the Boys. Downtown Niketsu Kunio-kun's historical period <laughs> drama, which is basically River City Ransom set in feudal Japan. Go-Go Niketsu Hockey Club Slip and Slide Madness, which is a pick-up-and-play ice hockey game. Okay, I think you made that last one up. Niketsu Fighting Legend, which is a two-on-two fighting game. Kunio-kun's Niketsu Soccer League, which is a follow-up to Nintendo World Cup Soccer. It's actually also a sequel to Mega Man Soccer. And Niketsu Street Basketball All-Out Dunk Heroes, which is obviously a basketball game. So anyway, the thing is that all 11 of these Japanese games aren't really just the Japanese versions. They've actually all been localized, so it's kind of like, you know, official ROM hacks or something, you know? Wow. Like, the U.S. version of River City Ransom, you know, had all new characters and all new storyline compared to the Japanese version, but if you play the Japanese version on this game, you know, they keep the original story, they keep the original character names, and you basically get them as the Kunio-kun games that they were originally intended, not this mishmash of unconnected games with oddly similar sprites 
and, you know, no continuity between them. So it really puts the series in a brand new light, and that's especially true of Renegade, which was altered so much for North America, I never had any idea it was even a Kunio-kun game until, like, a year ago. Wow, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. So it is the Japanese versions of these 11 games, but not actually the Japanese versions, because, you know, they're in English with (laughs) English text. New title screens, they even have, like, English box art. So I agree, it is definitely cool and very unusual. Yeah, I don't really think of that happening too often, but that's awesome. Yeah, it's something you almost never, ever get to see. As for the gameplay and the question of, are these games actually good? You know, it varies fairly wildly. These are 8-bit NES games. They are pretty impenetrable by today's standards. I ran around in downtown Neketsu Kunio-kun's historical period drama for a long time and had no idea what I was doing, for example. You know, I played two races in downtown Neketsu March Super Awesome Field Day. I came in second the first time I was playing, and I came in first the second time I was playing, and somehow that earned me a game over. So I clearly did not know what I was doing. (laughs) There are upgrades to a lot of these games, such as no slowdown, no flicker, some glitches have been removed. There's also visual filters. There are audio options, of course. But there aren't any difficulty options or anything like that. You can't rewind or anything. So some of these old games playing for the first time, it can certainly be overwhelming and very, very challenging to learn. Of course, the games I'm already familiar with, I really enjoy. Double Dragon 1 and 2, River City Ransom, and Super Dodgeball are among the all-time classics. However... You know, those four games are already available via Nintendo Switch Online's NES collection. So, you know, overall, these are great games from a historical perspective. It's really cool to be able to play these lost classics, especially. But, you know, the idea of paying $40 for this collection when some of the best games are already available elsewhere is a little bit iffy. You know, I'm really glad to have this in my library. I will still buy a physical version if it comes out, but... I can't really say this game is for everybody. So that's just something to keep in mind. Would you say that the worst game is still better than Urban Champion? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I think that is fair to say. (laughs) Okay, good. And another retro title I've been enjoying lately on Switch is Sega Ages Sonic the Hedgehog 2. This is a perfect port of one of the best, most lauded Sonic 16-bit games ever. This game is still a blast, or blast processing you could say, 28 years after its initial release, with its blistering pace, multiple routes through the levels, all kinds of crazy loops and corkscrews and platforming action. You can play the game in its original glory as Sonic teams up with Tails, the drunken mutant squirrel to kick Robotnik's (laughs) butt through a variety of themed worlds, such as Emerald Hill, The Chemical Plant... Aquatic Ruin, Casino Night, Mystic Cave, Oil Ocean, Robotnik's Death Egg, and more. Additionally, you can play a Keep Ring mode, which lets Sonic retain half of his rings when he gets hit. Wow. Yeah, that makes it a lot easier. Or you can choose to play as Knuckles, or even play as Super Sonic or Super Knuckles, which you can do after you have beat the game once. Anyway, yeah, this is an all-time great platformer. It's a fantastic version of this game. You know, despite having been on the Sega Genesis Mini and the Genesis Classics Collection that's also available on Switch, it has been a long time since I played this game, but this is sort of like the perfect excuse and maybe the ultimate version of this title. So, yeah, I am very happy with this, and I say go Blast Processing. <laughs> well, and it's perfect timing, too, with, uh, you know, Sonic tearing it up in the uh, movie theaters. Yeah, indeed. Indeed he is. That is 
True for sure. Also, one more retro tastic game I've been playing recently on Switch is the Mega Man Zero ZX Legacy Collection. I'll admit I haven't had a ton of time to sit down with this game yet, but it is a compilation of six games from the Game Boy Advance and Nintendo DS, Mega Man Zero 1, 2, 3, and 4, as well as Mega Man ZX and ZX Advent. As is obvious from the title, you get to play through many of these games as X's good friend Zero, who is back after a long hibernation. And yeah, it just adds up to some of the most crisp, responsive 2D action platforming I have ever experienced. There's just something that is so satisfying and refreshing and responsive about playing through these games. I mean, they can be super, super difficult at times, but I don't know, there's just something about them that uh, makes them very, very satisfying to play. They have that certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> uh, perhaps you could say that. <laughs> uh, one other thing that this game has, though, is a new casual mode that really lightens up the difficulty, making the game a lot more accessible for anyone who has never played through these games before. And like I said, most of them, especially 0, 1, 2, and 3, are just super hard as nails in their original form, so it's very nice to be able to have that option. There's also an option for more checkpoints, so you can you know reload very easily if you fail. So yeah, all these accessibility options are in there, along with an extensive art gallery and music gallery. And while I have only played you know, a few stages of Mega Man Zero in this collection, you know, I've just really, really enjoyed what I've played so far. It also has a lot of great control customizations, so you can configure the game to your liking. And uh, yeah, it's just shaping up to be a really, really excellent collection. I haven't had a chance to play the new Z Chaser mode. That's sort of the time trials mode. You can play against a friend or go for online rankings, but uh, that is a new feature add-in as well. So yeah, this is shaping up to be another excellent collection from the folks at Capcom. Nicely done, Cappy. That's kind of a weird thing to call them. <laughs> then the last new release I've been playing is a little game called Goblin Sword, which is a fairly straightforward 2D action platformer where you jump and slash your way through a number of bite-sized levels, all while collecting gems and treasure, which you can then use to buy new weapons and armor and other goodies. The graphics have some nice 16-bit charm, and the gameplay is fairly solid as well. I wouldn't say it's you know, anything super special, but you know the game was only $3. The regular price is $5. It was on sale. Uh, Pete, you kind of drew my attention to this. I thought it looked kind of cool, so I decided I would check it out and see what it was all about. You know, I'm not sure it's the kind of game that I would spend a lot of time with, but, you know, it's really hard to beat that price if you want a decent game for some quick pick up and play 16-bit style action. Yeah, I think what really drew me into this one is just the pixel art. It's really high quality. Like, Yeah, it's pretty nice. There are some really pretty levels. And just in general, I thought the overall aesthetic and the, the sound really goes a long way just to kind of be in this really simple, quick, but fun presentation for a uh, game that otherwise some people might miss. Yeah, it's definitely not a bad-looking game at all. I mean, compared to a lot of other stuff that's out there, you know, I'm not sure I'd want to spend too much time with this one, but it, it does offer a lot of value for such a low price. Yeah, so get out there and support your uh, little indies. <laughs> well said. And that takes care of our game impressions for this week. Let us move along to a little bit of news. And our main news topic for this episode is that last week, Nintendo held an Animal Crossing New Horizons Direct 
and dumped a whole bunch of new information on us. Basically, though, I felt like it all kind of boiled down to the fact that it is a much prettier version of Animal Crossing with some new features like landscaping and crafting added in. You know, there weren't like a whole lot of surprises, but I really feel like it made the Animal Crossing gameplay and formula look more impressive than ever. You know, places like the museum and aquarium, you know, you look at those, how they appear in the new game, and you think, man, Animal Crossing has really come a long way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's the big takeaway for me, too. It's like, this feels almost like a refined version of the Animal Crossing formula. Yeah, I think that certainly is true in a lot of ways. I mean, maybe they could be doing more as far as gameplay goes. I mean, as far as, you know, the setting and story, it certainly feels unique. I mean, we already knew that the game is set on this so-called deserted island, and it's owned by Tom Nook. We found out that, you know, you get to choose your basic map design of the island from the beginning, which I guess we didn't know before. You can choose if you're in the northern or southern hemisphere, which determines when the seasons fall, which, you know, I guess is good for folks who live in Australia or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Of course, the seasons change in real time, more or less, like they do in past Animal Crossing games, but that's different depending on which hemisphere you live in. Uh, Tom Nook, I guess he's pretty generous in this game. He gives you a shabby tent to live in when you (laughs) become his indentured servant and move to the island. (laughs) don't have a whole lot to start with but you know that does seem like it changes pretty quickly as you play the game you know you get to upgrade your tent to a house and by using the resident services office you can buy items you can sell junk you learn how to craft naturally you get to place the tents and homes of other island residents as they start to show up and you even get to change the color of furniture add designs to this furniture yeah there's a lot of customization that you can do in this game especially after you get that permit that lets you just start you know changing everything around the island designer permit it is called and suddenly the game almost is like minecraft you know Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels a little bit influenced by that. You know, and obviously even their own uh, Pocket Camp, which featured a little bit more of the crafting scenario. Oh yeah, there was lots of crafting in that. Yeah, so it definitely, to me, makes sense. And it feels like kind of the, I don't know, the natural progression of the Animal Crossing games. Like, went from not having that at all, and then sort of living in this post-Minecraft world where... You know, I think crafting really is this thing that people are super into, and I'm excited to see where it goes in this one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you start out having to place ladders and vault over rivers, but, you know, pretty soon you'll be able to build your own bridges, build staircases, make paths, all kinds of crazy stuff, and really make the island, you know, whatever you want it to be. Yeah, and I think especially with the online capability, I imagine that a lot of people are going to be seeing other people's stuff (laughs) and wanting to build it or know how to build it or, you know, to me, that's what drives, especially things like Minecraft, where you're like, you know, oh, how in the world did you do that? Or how did you get this cool item? Anyway, I I feel like Animal Crossing is going to have a lot more of that this time around. Yeah, you're probably right about that. I think when you be able to impress your friends and discovering new things you can do will certainly be a big part of this game's appeal. You know, as far as activities go, that's one thing I was really hoping that they would have something new and exciting. I'm not really sure that's the case. You know, there's still fishing and bug catching and fossil hunting, but it kind of seems like there's really nothing new in that department. You know, the advanced customization is nice, but I really was hoping for a few new activities to kick things up a notch. I did notice that there were uh, ghosts that are wandering around, though. Is that something that's new? 
There have been ghosts in previous Animal Crossings. I remember there was one, I believe it was the GameCube version, where at night you could find a ghost that would oh, okay. like do all your weeding and things of that nature. <laughs> but, you know, I, I still feel like this one is probably going to be chock full of things. And, you know, partner that with the fact that Nintendo has been pretty comfortable with adding things into the game post-launch. That's right. Mm-hmm, that is part of their plan. I feel like there's definitely opportunity for a lot more characters and a lot more activities and everything uh, that goes along with that. Yeah, they've certainly promised there's going to be a lot of updates, going to be seasonal events. There's going to be a Bunny Day event in April shortly after the game comes <laughs> out. So, yeah, there are going to be plenty of opportunities for new content to be added in. Two things I'm really excited about are the fact that there will be compatibility with Amiibo. Amiibo! Mm, I bet you are. And also some crossover functionality with Animal Crossing Pocket Camp. You know, obviously I am a big Amiibo fan, so it's always great to see that in there. And, you know, I guess you can use Amiibo, including like the hundreds of Animal Crossing Amiibo cards, to invite specific animals over to your island or participate in photo shoots. And then... Apparently, with Pocket Camp, there are these special items that you can get, which is great for me because I just keep playing that game despite the fact it's really not very good. It's basically, you know, a pay-to-win loot crate fest. (laughs) Yeah, after spending so much time with that, and zero money, may I add, uh, it would be nice to actually pay off with the Switch game. Yeah, look at that. Now, have you heard about the tie-in app as well for this? Oh, yeah, the uh, Nooklink app uh for smartphones. Yeah, apparently that will let you import some custom designs from older Animal Crossing games like Happy Home Designer and New Leaf. And I guess it is also what's going to be used for communicating with other players online since Switch doesn't have that built in at all. (laughs) Yeah, I actually think the use of the camera I did not see coming. I like that. Oh, right. For the QR codes. Definitely. Anyway, even though I was hoping for more new ideas, I'm still suitably impressed with what we're going to be getting. I think the biggest question for me is, do I go physical or digital? You know, physical means I'll have to swap the game card in pretty much every day to you know keep playing it. But, you know, digital means not having a game card at all. So, you know, for me personally, it is a tough call. Yeah, I think this one, I mean, I'm always kind of a digital person. <laughs> I think for this one, I would definitely get this digital just so that you can play it, you know, whenever, wherever. I think for me, the harder decision is, you know, I don't actually own a Switch Lite right now. But I'm trying to decide which console I'd play it on because, you know, as you know, you can only have one town per console. Right, that is true. And apparently you can't transfer save data easily between two systems like you can with most games. Uh, Yeah, that is kind of irritating now that you bring it up. Yeah, so I think that to me is the bigger dilemma. Do you uh, put it on the handheld only or do you put it in, uh, you know, the option to have both? I think you'd definitely go with the option to have both, you know. Might as well. No reason not to, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Probably. Probably. Anyway, we've got a few weeks to figure it out, because either way, I'm definitely going to be getting this game when it comes out, when it hits on March 20th. Yeah, I I think this one appeals, obviously, to the rabid Animal Crossing fans. But I also think that, you know, the Switch ownership is that of a lot of people that probably are new to the franchise. And I think that's an exciting prospect for this one. Yeah, for sure. Now, Pete, just a little bit ago, you mentioned the Switch Lite, and that's another bit of news that has come up recently. Nintendo has announced that there is a new coral-colored Switch Lite coming out, and it is being released on the same day as Animal Crossing, hitting on March 20th. And basically, when they say coral, they mean 
pink. <laughs> it is a very pink Nintendo Switch Lite system. Other than that, there's not really too much else special going on, but uh, yeah, it is a very pink system. I think that really plays up what you were saying about you know, how this game has really broad appeal. You know, pretty much all genders, all ages. I don't really think that is a coincidence. But anyway, Pete, is that what you're waiting for? Is that the Nintendo Switch light system you might get this coral pink one <laughs> you know it actually is a nice pink it's kind of a pastel yes yes it, it actually is. looks like you know if you skin kirby and and then <laughs> made a switch light out of it but uh, i'll even suggest that you're horrible <laughs> but yeah i have no qualms of this one i'm glad that it exists i'm sure there is a market that has been waiting for a pink switch light oh yeah without a doubt me, personally, I'm still waiting for a purple one or a Zelda-themed light. So uh, this one won't do it for me, but uh, yeah, it's cool to see it out there. Also in the news recently, there was an update on Streets of Rage 4. There is a new trailer that has debuted featuring a brand new character named Floyd, who seems to basically be a combination of Max and Zan from Streets of Rage 2 and 3, which is to say he is a big burly guy who is half-robot, and also has, like, you know, super grappling capabilities. Also, he kind of looks like Jax from Mortal Kombat, and he can turn his arm into a laser gun. I saw all that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, he looks awesome, and best of all, he can grab two guys at the same time and bash their heads together, just like you can do in the awesome Batman Returns game on Super NES. And I'm not mad about it. No, it looks fantastic to me. I am pretty sure that I have found the character I am going to start with when this game comes out. The developers have also confirmed it will have two-player online multiplayer, but it's also going to have local four-player co-op, which is very, very exciting for a game like this. Yeah, that's something I've wanted to see in a top-tier beat-em-up for a long time, so that is pretty darn excellent. You know, they haven't said if it's the whole game or just a special mode. Hopefully it is the entire campaign mode. But yeah, that's a pretty excellent feature, in my opinion. I mean, finding, you know, three friends to all play it together is going to be a bit of a chore, but man, that sounds really, really cool. Yeah, it's almost better than finding turkey in a trash can. <laughs> almost, almost better. They have also confirmed the game is coming out this spring. I mean, I guess we already knew it was slated for the first half of the year, so that's not too surprising, given that it's almost March. But yeah, it seems like the wait is almost over. It should only be a few more months until this game is out. And as I've said before, this is one of my most anticipated games of the year. I absolutely cannot wait. Yeah, the streets are almost raging. <laughs> almost. And speaking of excellent franchises that have sequels on the way, we just found out a couple of days ago that there is another new Shovel Knight game on the way. It's called Shovel Knight Pocket Dungeon. It is basically a Shovel Knight-themed falling block puzzle game. Yeah, and it actually looks pretty awesome. Yeah, as is expected with the series, this looks like a game that has a lot of polish and could be a lot of fun. You know, I really don't quite understand what's going on from viewing the trailer. <laughs> you see Shovel Knight uh, shoveling into lots of, uh, you know, matching colored bad guys and obstacles. It looks a lot like Wario's Woods in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, in the sense that it seems like you're controlling Shovel Knight in the actual puzzle grid versus just controlling pieces falling. Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely a different take than what you'd expect from most falling block puzzle games. But the game's going to have a story mode, it's going to have a versus mode, and uh, yeah, the graphics are shaping up to look pretty nice as well. Like I said, I don't know a whole lot about this game yet, but it is coming to Switch, 
And I think it's supposed to be out this year, right? Yeah, I think the fall. Okay, yeah, I'll certainly be looking forward to that one. Yeah, you know, for me, puzzle games aren't really something that I'm totally looking forward to, but every now and then you get one and you're like, wow, this one is really fun. And uh, I feel like the Switch is in need uh, of, of a puzzle game like that. Yeah, I think you're probably right, but you know, take a good puzzle formula, throw a great character like Shovel Knight into it, and it certainly sounds like a winner to me. A winner is you. Yeah, a winner is Shovel Knight. <laughs> and that does it for the news this week, so I guess it's time for us to move along to our intermission. And then when we come back, hey, we'll discuss this week's... Hey there, buddy. Oh, what's going on, Pete? Got more news for me? Nope. Oh, well then what's happening? It's time to hassle the hop. Oh, yeah. That. I was hoping you forgot. <laughs> okay, well, then I guess I better let you get to it. What do you have for me this week? Dear Video Game Professor Hoffman. Yes? What is your favorite puzzle game? And why? Okay, that is certainly a bit of a tricky question, Pete. I mean, there's, you know, those games that you can always go back to, like Tetris and Dr. Mario and Bust Moves are certainly some of my favorites. Right. But I think if I had to come down and decide an absolute favorite, well, I'm actually going to choose two games, because it's really hard for me to choose between them. Hmm. But... I think my primary pick is going to be Mario's Necropolis. Well, that's an interesting choice. Yeah, and you know, I think it takes a backseat in a lot of people's minds to those other more popular games, but for me, I just find it to be a very satisfying, thoughtful game, and it's one you can take your time with, but you know, when you figure out those puzzles, you know, it's really, really rewarding. You know, it's kind of like Sudoku in the way that you're using numbers to figure out where things go, but then you sort of get this little nifty picture reward at the end. And, you know, if you were to check the time I've spent playing games on my 3DS, I'm pretty sure you would find that the virtual console version of Mario's Cross from the Game Boy is like my number two game on the system, <laughs> probably. Wow, that's a uh, high praise. Yeah, and you know, I've always wanted to see some of the other Nintendo-developed Picross games come out here, and I don't think any of them ever have, but there are a lot of other Picross games out there as well, and I enjoy those, you know, Pokemon Picross, there was that little Legend of Zelda Picross game, that was pretty cool, but the one I've certainly sunk the most time into is Mario's Picross, so I kind of want to say that. Would you mind if I got a hold of your console so I could uh, delete your save file? Uh, well, then that just means I have to put in more time playing it. So to be honest, that would not be the end of the world this time. All right. All right. Fair. And uh, something else? Yeah. The other game I would choose is something a little bit unconventional. And that one is Professor Layton and the Unwound Future. Yeah. It is truly a puzzle game. Well, I was going to think maybe you thought that was kind of cheating since it's not strictly a puzzle game. You know, there's all sorts of adventure elements in there. And that's one of the reasons I pick this one because it has a great story and all this exploration but yeah i mean it does have like more than 100 puzzles in there and a wide variety of puzzles at that it's got riddles math puzzles logic puzzles block moving puzzles probably literal jigsaw puzzles <laughs> and so it's got all that and then you throw in these great characters and it's really touching story and you have a really fantastic game and this one almost made it into my top 10 of the decade that we were talking about wow. last episode yeah i think i remember so, you saying that yeah so that one is definitely up there so if you're talking just a strict puzzle game that i would go mario's the cross if I'm allowed to cheat a little bit and branch out into something a little broader, then I would go with Professor Lake in the other future. But those are my picks. 
Well, you're sort of a cheater, so <laughs> it's okay. How dare you? <laughs> what would you pick? Yeah, I would actually pick, this is kind of an obscure one, but for the Pokemon Mini Console, which is uh, like a handheld device that Nintendo made years ago. Oh yeah, I barely remember it, but yeah. <laughs> there was a game that came out for a Tetris game called Shock Tetris. And it basically was this version of Tetris on this tiny little handheld device. But what made it so compelling was that you actually have to catch Pokemon in the game by completing like four rows at once. Mm-hmm. But then there was also five block pieces. Like So Tetris is all the shapes you can make out of four blocks. This was all the shapes you can make out of five blocks. So there was definitely a lot of crazy things going on, if you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sounds pretty wild. That's only available on this one little device, huh? Yeah, and if you had a piece that you couldn't use, you could actually shake the console and it would flip your piece. So, you know when you get that L block and you're like, I can't use that L block if only it was facing the other way. Well, on this one, you can. You can actually shake the console and the block flips and then you can place it. So, I don't know. In my mind, it really changed the game. Okay, yeah, I have to admit, I have not played that one, but it sounds very interesting. Yeah, you should probably watch a YouTube video of it if you want to believe me. All right, I'll keep that in mind. Anyway, if my answer has satisfied your question, then I think it is time for us to move along, take an intermission, and then when we come back, we will have this week's big topic, which is the 30th anniversary of Super Mario Bros. 3. All right, we are back, and we are ready to discuss this week's big topic, which is the 30th anniversary of Super Mario Bros. 3 for the NES. Well, I'm officially old. (laughs) This game recently celebrated that milestone just earlier this month, and so we have decided to look back on this legendary classic and discuss why it is so well-remembered by so many people. You know, a lot of people probably consider this to be, you know, the best game on the NES. I wouldn't rate it quite that high, but, you know, it's hard to deny that it is a phenomenal, amazing game. Yeah, I feel like if you're talking about the top Mario games, you almost have to include uh, Super Mario Bros. 3 somewhere in that conversation because it, it is up there with, you know, the best and some of people's favorite. Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, but this was the game that sort of turned the Mario universe into this living, breathing place. 
I mean, obviously, Super Mario 1 was great, and it redefined video games, and the American version of Super Mario Bros. 2 add a lot in terms of giving more personality to the characters, but Super Mario Bros. 3 really took things even further, not only by returning to the original Super Mario Bros. formula, but by adding things like a world map, and stuff like that just made the game feel so much more expansive and varied. And, you know, I can only imagine what it was like for players in Japan who basically got, you know, these first two Super Mario Brothers games. They were kind of running on the same engine. They looked very similar. They played very similar. And then they got this massive upgrade to Super Mario <laughs> Brothers 3, you know. Our Super Mario Brothers 2 was a big leap over the original in terms of technology and diversity. But, you know, to go straight from their 1 and 2 to 3, it would probably just, you know, blow their minds you know <laughs> yeah you're right i never really thought about it like that but yeah they would have been going from essentially mario brothers one graphics mm -hmm. to mario brothers three graphics yep yep yes indeed so anyway i was kind of wondering you know before we got into the specifics of the game itself what are your feelings and memories about the hype surrounding the game's release you know all this time ago 30 years ago you know the game came out in 1988 in japan and you know some magazines sort of covered it as an import but it was pretty low-key and kind of hush-hush and there weren't like a ton of gaming publications back then so it's not like now where the whole thing would suddenly appear streamed over the internet like five minutes after the japanese release so instead we sort of got this slow trickle of information you know yeah i mean there certainly wasn't the internet <laughs> <laughs> that is true and yeah i mean i think you know this game was funny because I'm not going to say that prior to this, there wasn't hype for a game, because there was. Yeah, but Super Mario Bros. 2 had a lot of hype. Zelda 2 had a lot of hype. But, but... I feel like Super Mario Bros. 3 was where it was like, okay, <laughs> we've been here, we've done this. Now it's time to really turn on the marketing machine. <laughs> yes. And let's make this game, you know, just sell gangbusters. Mm -hmm. And of course they did. And, you know, I think one big vehicle of that, and we've talked about this before, but was the Fred Savage movie. <laughs> the Wizard. Yes, it is pretty much the most ridiculous marketing vehicle ever. <laughs> but yeah, that was sort of the hook for this movie is that, you know, in the finale, it was like the big North American reveal of Super Mario Brothers 3, you know. So unfortunately, if you were a big Nintendo fan in the 80s, you were kind of forced to sit through this excruciatingly <laughs> boring and often inappropriate movie just to see footage <laughs> of this awesome game you know it was played in the finals of this video game tournament in the movie and you know that was i think pretty much without a doubt the best part of the film yeah one thousand percent <laughs> and i think i read it somewhere that that basically it was less of a movie and more of a commercial which i think is probably pretty apt <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you're not wrong about that so did you fall for it did you buy into this hype did you actually go see the movie so you could see super mario <laughs> brothers 3 that is the real question yeah absolutely but i wouldn't say it was <laughs> just purely for super mario brothers 3 i think it was just kind of like for lack of a better way of saying it it kind of felt like you know mainstream going hey we know you we know you like games let's do this you know it obviously turned out to be not as like earnest is that like <laughs> they didn't really care about us it was all about money but you know it felt like sort of being invited to the cool kid table by having a video game movie that was the first of its kind really yeah unfortunately 97 percent of it was not video games it was like you know fred savage and his <laughs> little brother and some girl getting chased around by bad guys oh it's a terrible movie oh it's awful 
Yeah, I mean, it's not even, you know, like Super Mario Brothers where it can be like so bad it's good sort of thing. This was just, you know, boring and not enjoyable at all. And so I'm pretty sure I did not see it in the theater, but I did check it out on home video just so I could see Super Mario Brothers 3. And yeah, it really wasn't worth seeing the movie just to get to that part. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I did check it out just for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I don't really even know what the final amount of time Super Mario Brothers 3 was actually on the screen for. Yeah, it couldn't have been very long. Uh, a minute, two minutes, something like that. Right, tops. You know, and plus you were probably seeing, you know, commercials for it at that point. And there was also, you know, of course, Nintendo Power really, you know, pumping this thing. Yep, yep, yep. That is true. That was really the other place where you would find out about this game. Oh, by the way, before we move on from The Wizard, I should mention, of course, the other great thing about that movie was the part about the power glyph. So it was only 95% terrible instead of 97% terrible, or whatever I said. <laughs> yeah, the power glove had never looked cooler than in that movie. And it's, <laughs> That's right. it's never looked as cool since. It's never been as accurate either. It is <laughs> so bad. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But however, this is not a discussion about The Wizard. This is a discussion about Super Mario Bros. 3. And yeah, like you were saying, it was hyped very heavily in Nintendo Power for obvious reasons. You know, it got two cover stories. It got issue 11 and then issue 13. Issue 13 being a full strategy guide devoted entirely to Super Mario Bros. 3 before we were really doing player's guides and stuff like that. You know, and in addition to that, there were preview articles. There were all sorts of behind-the-scenes articles, and naturally, the game looked totally amazing because it had so much content that previous Mario games didn't have, and they did have, like, you know, more than a year, maybe a year and a half, to build up the hype for this game between the time it came out in Japan and the time it was coming out to North America. So there was a lot to show, and then, you know, the game pretty much 100% delivered on all these promises that we were seeing in the magazine. Yeah, I mean, it felt like almost all the issues of Nintendo Power leading up to Super Mario Bros. 3, there was like a corner of the magazine reserved for Super Mario Bros. 3 information. I want to say the game didn't appear until issue 9 or so, but they certainly spent a good deal of page space hyping it up, that's for sure. But anyway, I guess we should start getting into you know what these specific features were that made the game so exciting. And for me, I would say one of those absolutely would have to be the fact that Mario now gets to fly. You know, all of a sudden, we weren't just playing a side-scrolling 2D game where you go left and right. Now you could fly up into the air and play vertically as well. I mean, the sky was literally the limit, and the developers proved it right there in the first level, where you could easily build up speed and then run and then soar into a sky full of clouds and coins and secrets. Yeah, I mean, if you think about life before 3D games... The sky was really the third dimension. It was like, oh, I can actually explore anywhere now. Yeah, and this game really provided that sense of exploration and adventure pretty much like nothing else that had come before it. And going along with it, you know, part and parcel with the flying was that raccoon suit, which was a brand new power-up for Mario. And not only did it let him fly, but it let him smack blocks and enemies with his tail, and it would let him float so you could control your jumps better. It was easily one of Mario's most iconic looks. And I feel like anytime Nintendo really wants to push those nostalgia buttons, they kind of go back to the raccoon suit. That's what they turn to because that was such a memorable thing for players. So, you know, when they wanted people to be like, oh yeah, that's so awesome. You know, they went back to it like they did in New Super Mario Brothers 2. Right, and not, of course, to confuse it with the Tanuki suit. 
right, that was another thing that was in there. You know, they didn't stop with just the raccoon suit. There was the Tanuki suit, which was more or less the same thing. And I never really understood why that was in there, but it's so similar. I mean, I thought it was cooler because it covers his whole body and it lets him transform into a statue. And that does make him more or less invincible. And that's pretty cool. You can do a few things that you can't do with any other item in the game. Destroy some otherwise invincible enemies. And then on top of that, there is the frog suit, which gives him underwater mobility. And then there's the hammer suit, which not only looked really, really cool, but basically let you turn into a hammer brother. So you could kind of, you know, turn the tables on the enemies and throw hammers at them after all these years. Yeah, I mean, all of these power-ups were, you know, legendary. And I feel like you could have just put one in a game and you would have been fine. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that they had all of those things going on in this game, I mean, it really gave the impression that, like, you just didn't know what was around the corner in this game. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I feel like in the more recent new Super Mario Brothers series, they haven't really gone back to that. But there was this time where Mario games really elicited this whole feeling of like, I have no idea when I go in this pipe what's about <laughs> to happen. <laughs> Anyways, it really, this game just had it in spades. Yeah, it really, really did elicit that feeling. Now, of those new power-ups, did you have a favorite? Yeah, I think if I was going to pick one, well... The raccoon one is so fun, and it added so much to the gameplay. But I think just from an aesthetic point of view, I think the frog suit was kind of my favorite. Ah, interesting, interesting. Because the one that I ended up picking as my favorite is the Hammer Brothers outfit. Oh. I just like the idea of being able to you know turn the tables on the enemies like that and you know sort of do to them what they've been doing to me for all those years. You know, those Hammer Brothers were so annoying in that first Super Mario Brothers game, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, they were the worst thing about the original Super Mario Brothers game. <laughs> As far as difficulty goes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just really liked that idea. I thought it looked really cool. I love the fact that if you could actually defeat one of the bosses while wearing that suit, the king who you rescued would say something ridiculous like, oh, hey, let me borrow your clothes, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, the bad thing about all those outfits is that even though they were really cool, you lost them as soon as you got hit, and they were, like, super rare, other than the raccoon suit. And, of course, the Fire Mario, you know, that was in there as well. You know, that was the only thing that came back from the original. That was the only thing you could do in the original. You know, that was easy enough to get. The frog suit, the hammer suit, the tanuki suit, if you got those and then lost it, it's like, well, I'm not going to see that for hours again if I ever see it again while I'm playing through this game. So, <laughs> yeah, that was the one downside to those is they were, you know, sort of almost impossible to find. Yeah, you're right. They were really stingy with handing out the super suits. Uh-huh. And that was one of my problems. You know, I would always, you know, before I really got to learn it, I would tend to get hit and lose it. So I'd be like, oh, I gotta go back and restart or something like that, you know? <laughs> you know, I'm starting to realize after looking at pictures online, the actual icon for the Hammer Brothers suit kind of looks like the fat goalie from ice hockey. <laughs> okay. Well, that's another reason to like it then, I guess. <laughs> yep. So, you know, another great thing about this game is the much more diverse selection of levels that it had compared to any previous Mario game. I mean, Super Mario Bros. 2 had a good selection of themed levels, but these were bigger and even more varied, and the fact that there was a world map really gave context to each of these worlds that you were exploring. Yeah, I thought that this game really captured that whole idea of like, okay, now you're in this world and now you're in this world. And and like you said, the map really helped explain that to the player. Mm-hmm. Just to speak to the levels, this is where Mario kind of introduced that whole theme of like, okay, now you're on this island full of giants. Mm-hmm. Now you're in this world that's sort of islandy. Yeah, I mean, it kind of set the standard for this themed world sort of thing. You know, you had 
First, your typical grassy plains, then you got your desert world, your water world, your ice world, your sky world. I mean, there was also a sort of a plant and pipe world, which is definitely not in the uh, traditional manual of themed levels, but it certainly makes a lot of sense for a Mario game. And naturally, there was also the uh, castle and lava level at the end where you would encounter Bowser and all of his worst, most dangerous threats. Yeah, absolutely. However, I would say my favorite was the one that you already mentioned, Far and Away World 4, which I think was Giant World or Big Island or something like that. But <laughs> I don't know why. That one just really, really stands out to me as my favorite level. I mean, for one thing, it's not really something you see in a lot of games. It's also pretty atypical for you know themed levels. But you know, you got to fight giant Koopas, giant Goombas, you smash giant blocks. I don't really know why I found that to be so fun, <laughs> but I absolutely loved it. It is by far my favorite world in the game. Totally. I remember seeing screenshots of that and then just wanting to get to the point where I could see that for myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of times I would just play up to World 4 and be like, okay, all right, cool. I've seen it. I'm done for the day. <laughs> That's right. Of course. Yeah, I guess it just looked really cool in screenshots back then. It was sort of the pinnacle of gaming visuals way back in 1990, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, I think it was just so like, whoa, I can't believe that there's a Goomba that's, you know, like bigger than Mario. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, that was definitely a winning formula. But then on top of just having these different themes, they also had a lot of new ideas in the levels that add a lot of diversity. You know, sometimes the levels were actually vertically scrolling. Oh, right. Some of them introduced auto-scrolling. You know, this was where we got these fortresses in the middle of the game. And, of course, we had airships at the end of each level. Uh, and, you know, the levels now had these sloped services that you could actually slide down. And it really all add up to bring the Mushroom Kingdom to life. Yeah, I mean, I remember the airships for the first time just being like, wow, that is really cool. Yeah, there were a lot of really neat and really interesting ideas that came to life in this game. And then beyond that, one of the great things about this title is just how much personality it had. And, you know, a lot of that ties into the airships because each one of those was commanded by one of the Koopalings. That's right. This game also introduced them for the first time. Yep, that is correct. Or, you know, back then, I think they were often known as the Koopa Kids, right? That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, of all the things that Nintendo has sort of retconned over the years, the Koopa Kids bug me the most. Because as far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely Bowser's kids. Right. And then you get Bowser Jr. and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah, Bowser Jr., he's a chump. <laughs> he really is. Yeah, I don't like him. I don't care about him. It is all about the Koopa Kids or the Koopalings as far as I'm concerned. You know, despite the fact that there is seven of them, you know, one for each of those first seven worlds before they have Bowser in the eighth world, I think they all feel pretty distinct. I mean, I guess even now I still kind of confuse Iggy and Lemmy, but all of them still had a lot of personality. Yeah, I mean, I think if you just look at their art style, I mean, they're all just like, <laughs> and their names, they're all just like brewing with like <laughs> ridiculous randomness. Well, I mean, all the names, they're based off of musicians of, you know, one type or another. Right. But just funny in general, like, I mean, Morton Downey Koopa. <laughs> okay. Morton Koopa Jr., I believe. <laughs> but yeah, I guess he's not really a musician. Yeah, that's sort of a weird one. 
And he seems to have lost the junior in his name as the years have gone on. <laughs> yeah, that one was definitely out there. My personal favorite, though, is Roy. I think I just really like his Macho Man Randy Savage sunglasses. Oh, that's true. You can almost hear him just going, Oh, yeah, I'm going to take you to the airship. <laughs> yeah, he wants to snap Mario like a Slim Jim. Hey, Freak Show, you're going down. Yep, Roy is ready. <laughs> I'm just glad he didn't have a really bad fake suntan. But uh, yeah, all seven of those characters were pretty darn great. And they're really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to personality. This game gave us a ton of new enemies that have since become Mario series mainstays, like the Boos, Dry Bones, Thwomps, Chain Chomps, uh, Boom Boom. And let us not forget some of your personal favorite Mario enemies, Big Bertha, and the blooper nanny. Ah, the blooper nanny. Yep. It is a blooper followed by a series of uh, little baby bloopers. It's not the blooper mommy, it's a blooper nanny. <laughs> yeah, and this game is also the first instance of Kuribo's shoe, which is, uh, you know, off forgotten. Oh, yeah. In fact, I almost forgot about it myself, but you're right. That is one of the uh, coolest little aspects of the game. You know, I think it's only in like one level or two levels or something like that. But uh, yeah, for some reason, it'll sort of become legendary in Mario canon. You know, they brought it back for the Mario Maker games. Yeah, it is a uh, great little power-up. Just jump into this weird green shoe and you <laughs> just bounce through the levels, stomping on everything and being able to walk on otherwise damaging surfaces. So yeah, that is certainly a very cool little power-up that uh, really didn't get more attention. But it's one of the things that just makes this game so cool. You know, they would throw in something like that. It's hardly used, but it's still totally awesome. <laughs> Right. It's like, who played through this and was like, okay, we're only using that in two places. I guess we'll keep it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's what made older video games pretty cool. That kind of stuff. Yeah, that's one of the things that was great about the Mario formula. Speaking of Mario formula, this game was also the first to introduce sort of like the, I guess what you'd call like the mushroom house. Almost like the bonus levels of Mario. Oh, yeah, it did certainly introduce a bunch of those. There were many things you could do to earn power-ups and extra lives as you play through the game. You'd find all these little places on the world map that you could check into and be like, hey, I'm going to earn a new power-up or extra lives or whatever. Yeah, there was like, I think like Toad's House. There was like, you know, you could open up different chests for a power-up. Yep, that's right. There was also like a card game that was like based on memory. Yeah, you had to match up the cards and get whatever power-up or coins or whatever was on the flip sides. Mm -hmm. Right, and then, of course, the matching game. The items kind of went by in layers of three, and you had to, like, match it up so you got the right one. And uh, depending on which image you made, you'd get, like, extra lives. Oh, right, you had to line up the pieces of the picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they had lots of cool extra stuff like that. You know, get the cards to the end of the level to be able to earn extra lives as well. And let's not forget that if you are playing in two-player mode, it even included a revised version of the original Mario Brothers game. I would never really, you know, try to do that if I'm trying to succeed at the game because you sort of just got in each other's way and <laughs> you were belling out for coins. And it didn't really help you move forward if you're trying to play a two-player game, but it was a very, very fun inclusion. Yeah, for sure. And I guess we haven't even talked about the warp whistle yet. Oh, yeah, that was certainly a key item as well. Yeah, so, you know, obviously everyone knows that in the original Mario Brothers, there was sort of the way to warp to future levels. And I guess, you know, Nintendo decided to kind of lean into that and create this ability to, you know, actually warp to new levels with the warp whistle. 
Yep, that's how it was done this time. There were a couple of those hidden on World 1, and then another one hidden on World 2. Also felt like a little bit of a nod to Zelda, uh, in the sense that this little tornado comes and picks you up and puts you wherever you want. Yeah, it certainly was very Zelda-esque in a lot of ways. Oh well, I guess it was made by the same company. Yep, you got that right. Anyway, you take all these elements, you take you know the big things like the new power-ups and the variety of worlds, and then you take the small things like Kerbo's shoe and the mini-games... And, you know, throw those all together with the traditional Mario gameplay, you add in new characters, you toss in the Koopa kids, and you just wind up with a very, very polished, very robust platformer. And it's a game that still, you know, when you play it now, even 30 years later, is just chock full of secrets and fun and cool stuff to do around every corner. I feel like I can truly now say, as an old man, they don't make them like they used to. (laughs) Well, in one sense, that's good because, you know, the one beef I've always had with Super Mario Bros. 3 is that it was impossible for me to finish in one sitting. I have never played that game through from start to finish. As a kid, you know, if I wanted to get to the end of the game, I would have to use those warp whistles. Otherwise, it was just like, you know, play up to maybe level four. And that's about all I could do in one sitting. So I have to say, it is nice that, you know, with current systems, you can just, you know, stop and save your game. You don't have to, like, leave it on overnight if you want to play the whole thing, you know, at once, right? That's right. They wouldn't let you save it, so you had to start over every time if you turned your console off. Yeah, no battery backup, no password from that one. It is certainly nice to be able to use save states in modern versions of the game. Yeah, and that's a lot of gameplay for one sitting. Yep, absolutely. But regardless, any way you look at it, it is still an all-time classic and among the best on the 8-bit NES. It certainly is, Huff. It certainly is. All right, then. I think that brings this week's big topic to a close. Although, you know, if any of our listeners want to write in and tell us what their favorite Super Mario Bros. 3 moments are, that would be great as well. But that aside, I think it's time for us to wrap up this week's episode of the podcast. However, before we do that, we do have time for one more thing, and that is a dramatic reading. Yes. This week, it is... The eShop description of the Nintendo Switch game, Refreshing Sideways Puzzle Ghost Hammer. New system game, Sideways Puzzle. Let's release ghosts from blocks. Refreshing Sideways Puzzle Ghost Hammer is puzzle game. You join blocks with hammer in. Let's challenge the mission with finding out the movements of blocks falling sideways and down. About this game. (laughs) Story mode. Challenge the mission, and you can read the story. (laughs) Missions occur at each stage, including the type of blocks to be broken, the use of special hammers, and so on. Clear all the disturbances from which and release the story. You can check the released ghosts in Ghost Index. Endless mode. You can play the puzzle until you lose. Endless mode is an unlimited stage until the game is over. The difficulty level is increasing as the game progresses. Join blocks with hammer to the max level. (laughs) Introduction. One day, ghosts kidnapping occurred in Phantom Kingdom. Princess Aurora heads to Demonus Forest, where Witch Serata is to save ghosts. <laughs> what is the purpose of Witch and the Secret of Kingdom that is revealed in the battle? <laughs> the voices of this game include only Japanese versions.
Wow, what a ridiculous game. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know anything about the game. It might actually be very good. I just kind of get the feeling that the developers didn't really have much of a budget to spend on their localization. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like textbook why people hire localization people. <laughs> I hate to say that, but it, it really is. It's like it's like the game looks good. The pictures are nice. Yeah, it looks very cute. And they're trying to sell it for $28. But if this is the copy that I can expect to find in the game, <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure anybody is. <laughs> well, it makes for some fun light reading. This is true. Or fun dramatic reading, you might say. Oh, indeed. Anyhow, that does it for this week. As always, you can find us at powerpros.podbean.com and you can follow us at PowerProsPod on both Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me, The Hoff, on Twitter at ChrisTheHoff, and you can find Pete at BurlyReadyEddy. You can email us at powerprospod at gmail.com, and if you like the podcast, it would be great if you told your friends about us. Thanks for listening, everybody. For myself, Pete Bashad, Sayonara, Hoffson, and Pete's Evil Reflection, Dark Pit. Goodbye! We will see you next time.